You're tuned in to KEPW LP 97.3 FM in Eugene, Oregon. PeaceWorks Independent Community Radio, also streaming online at KEPW.org. Now we gathered here on the universe at this time, this particular time, to listen to the 36 black notes of the piano. There's 36 black notes and 52 white notes. We don't mean to eliminate nothing, but we're gonna just hear the black notes at this time, if you don't mind. You're listening to Black Girl from Eugene with Aisha. advised the recording of this show the audio is loud please adjust your radio as needed welcome to black girl from eugene i'm your host aisha my guest today is icy bailey out of toronto canada he's an author of the book called conversations with white people dialogues about race how are you doing I'm excellent. Thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, God, I'm so excited that you're here. And it's funny because we bumped into each other online and I thought I was in trouble. (laughs) No, not at all. You're a trailblazer. You're doing the work like like black women do 99 percent of the labor in the struggle. And you're doing the work. You're amazing. I'm a <laughs> Thank you so much. You're I, you know, because I, I, I went ahead and was just, um, I was on the platforms that you have created, and I just sent a video, and then you were like, um, excuse me, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, did I do something wrong? But okay, so I'm, I'm humbled because I am in awe of your accomplishments there on Facebook. So let's get, let's start about. I'm just gonna. Just push that out there, and then I'm going to talk. Let's talk about where you started, where you came from with this, and how this, uh, to me, seems to be a passion for you. It's your life. It's how we live, um, and I appreciate you putting it out there like that. Um, so anyway, I'm going to just just belt it out your accolades that I know of. Uh, on your, you have twenty some odd platforms on Facebook. Um, you have a hundred and fifty thousand followers. And you've reached 18 million people. Is that about accurate? Yeah, in the last year we've reached 18 million people. I don't know how many we've reached in the last five years or so, but 18 million. And, and it's not just my work, it's really the community's work. Because like I said, you know, our moderators, our project teams, our volunteers, and our members really are doing the work. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're out there. Um, fighting against racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and the things that are damaging marginalized people's lives. Right. This is this is amazing that you put these platforms out. Now these platforms are you start them off very simply conversations about sex or about race or about. Do you have a conversations about sex? What? <laughs> you have conversations with sex up. and relationships. In relationships. Yeah, I need to like write these all down so I, I want to be a part of all of them. <laughs> You have conversations about race, and that's the one that I'm in. Conversations about uh, speak talking with men. Um, throw out a couple more. So there's conversations with white people, uh-huh. which we primarily talk about racism, white supremacy. Right. We have conversations with black people, where we talk about stuff in the black community. Mm-hmm. Conversations with men and women are two different separate groups. Conversations with um, indigenous people 
um, conversations with the LGBTQIA2 plus community, conversations with people of color, and then we have individual groups for sexual relationships, parents and caregivers, mental health, religion, and a couple new ones that are starting up teams. And then we have a couple of groups that are internationally located. Indigenous Rise and Indigenous World of Entertainment. And that really binds communities, Indigenous communities all over the world. That's amazing. You're giving a platform for anyone and everyone to speak their 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 truth and their peaceful. And, and now how now you have people in those platforms kind of monitor making sure people aren't being abusive or is that I mean how yeah. do you yeah, so you're in there it's a safe spot for people to talk about their truth. Well, it's not a safe space, <laughs> but it's a brave space. It's a crime. So we we do our best in ensuring that black native indigenous women really are sitting in a place of leadership and their voices are heard. Okay. And so every one of our spaces is moderated and we do, you know, the team does an amazing job, you know, amazing job yeah. to um, ensure that. And then, um, because we see these organizations or these, these initiatives start up and then sometimes men, you know, we get, we, we get in our way. We, where our patriarchy causes problems. So what we've done was we've created a group called the Knowledge Keepers of only black and indigenous women. Oh, I'm the founder. I'm not even in that group. And what they do, those the Council of Wise Women, is they really make a lot of the decisions um, and influence the direction we go. That's beautiful. You've been very intentional about keeping it within the women and, and knowledgeable group. Do they, now do they, um, so they're the ones that make the decision over these 20 or odd, some odd platforms? Well, we make a decision as a community, right. but when the knowledge keepers say, we don't like X, then X isn't going to happen. X. It's just it's not. I mean, there's times when I've decided, oh, I, you know, I've listened to the voices of the community because I tend to do this work. I'm doing this full time. Right. The knowledge keepers contribute what they can, when they can, but they give me an indication of what they want. And so based on what they want and what I think the community, not just knowledge keepers say, then, then I try to go out um, as caretaker or to be of service to make some of those things happen. That's, so, that's um, beautiful. Uh, it's, set up so, it's set up so thoughtfully. That's why I'm, I mean, I'm impressed for lots of reasons, but <laughs> I'm impre- I'm, but one of the main things is that it's so cognitively, I mean, it's so clear to me that it's been set up with such intention and very deliberately put so. And so I think a lot of, um, I can go onto a lot of platforms and you can just see it just doesn't, it doesn't allow growth. And I've, I've definitely been on your platforms listening and not saying anything, just reading what's been going on. And the levels of knowledge that are there are vast. <laughs> you're not getting a whole, you're not getting a very heady conversation necessarily. You're not getting all people who don't know what they're talking about. It's a good mix kind of in between. And I, and I really appreciate that. So, um, so going back, I want to talk about you, how this even started for you. Um, I know that you're living in Toronto, Canada, which for people around here, you know, I'm here in Oregon in the United States, Canada seems to be in this fantasy land of, of, (laughs) yeah. Oh man. Canada is like, right. (laughs) It's not like I live in the fourth largest, it's really tied with Chicago, the third largest or fourth largest city in North America. 
there's only LA and, and, and um, New York that are larger than the city I live in. Wow. Like, yeah. And so the same dynamic that you're going to see in Philly, in Boston, in Miami, and all these other cities that you see, Dallas, mm -hmm. there's cities that are like, the ones I just mentioned, are like, you know, a tenth to a quarter of the size that, right. that Toronto is. This is a big city, and, and we're talking up here, black people are around 6% of the population. Wow. So our part is even smaller, and so the stuff that happens here to, to black people and to the native community is, is, is like a form, in some cases, of apartheid for native folks out west. Right. So racism is, in parts of Canada is like, like the deep south was in the 50s. Wow. Now that's something people don't, it, we do not equate that. I'm telling you, <laughs> people do not equate that level of racism in Canada anywhere. It doesn't matter what size city, it's not coming across. We're politicians telling people to go back to Africa, but I've been here for five generations, longer than your family's been here. Right. You've got, the, you've, you've got like hate mail being sent to, um, to black women in professional roles out West. You've got, um, you know, Police shootings not as much because they figured out if they if they control the police a little bit more and don't let them shoot people, then they can pretend racism isn't a deal. Right. Okay. But, but carding is and incarceration rates and the gap between white people who are charged with the same criminal record as black people who are charged with the same criminal record. Mm -hmm. There's still that gap in sentencing. It there's in every single part of the standard of living that we all have. There's a gap between the black experience. And, and the white experience, okay. with the white experience and having ha having advantage and benefit. Right now, from not to state the obvious, because I feel like you and I, as both black folks, this is this, our life. And I guess it's not obvious for all black folks, because I talked about on my podcast as well as how many people don't identify and try to run away, run <laughs> and try to blend in and try to not be mm -hmm. a part of um, of our reality. So when you when you're being as articulate and you're making these platforms and you're out here in the world and you're how how did you get to this point where you said this is what I'm going to be doing all full time all day? Well, I mean, how far back do you want me to go? I, I, well, I, I, hey, how, <laughs> what do you feel comfortable with? We got a box. Okay, I don't know about that. I don't want to cry today. Like you know, be no, it, it is, but I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I'm you know. When we talk about our, you know, some of our work, it's about being our genuine selves and coming to a space where I, as a male, as a man, can share um, my sadness, yeah. my loneliness, yeah. my, you know, my trauma, and I'm okay talking about those right. things, right? Yes, um, and I appreciate that vulnerability, and I think that that's also, I mean, there's just so much in this talking to you that I'm thinking about with people who just the the stereotypes that happen for black men, especially. I mean, we could, we could talk about black women's territory, but for black men, you, you just aren't allowed to be vulnerable. You just aren't allowed to have a consciousness. You know, you're just not allowed to be as thoughtful um, as you are. So when I think about where you came from and what I know of you, when we talk about your mother um, moving to Canada from Jamaica with a dream of journalism, and then that being shattered by violence. So um, let's start there with the, cause I, that's, and the, the, what happened to you and your sisters um, being adopted by violent white families and raised in that environment, I, I can't, I can only um, assume and imagine that 
that would leave a space in your heart for for demanding to be understood and to be heard. If you were, if I mean, it, you either have two choices in my head. You either can be crushed by that, or you're gonna take it and you're gonna build with it. So, tell me what, tell me how it went for you. So yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot as they say to unpack there. Yeah. So for me, I grew up uh, up until I was probably around 18 years old. I grew up in um, a sexually abusive um, household uh, and schooling environment and community. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the sexual abuse stopped when I was around 15, 16 years old, around there. Um, but the, the mental and emotional abuse continued. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that when you assess where a person's at in your life, you, it'd be great to be able to see how they treat others when no one else is looking. Point. And so what I learned as a young black child with no black parenting, no black people around mm -hmm. was who was who and to the degrees of their racism and severity of their, of their abusive mindsets wow. and their toxicity of beha behavior. And so what I recognized as a young person mm -hmm. that every single person that I had significant involvement with was abusive to me. Right. There was no one more abusive. Mm -hmm. Either mentally, sexually, physically, emotionally, academically, or spiritually, they're abusive to me. All of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, having the title of my book is Conversations with White People, mm -hmm. the first conversations with white people were conversations that were about my survival. Right. That I have to learn in order, because I thought I was going to be killed. I mean, all during my childhood, I thought there'd be a time when I was just killed. I didn't quite know what that meant. Right. I just knew that I always thought that one day that one of these white people would kill me. Oh, God. And I, and I, I lived the constant fear of, of that suffering. Right, right. And as a child, I don't, I don't, even if it's not to that, you know, horrible level, I think at some, at one degree or another, black children, um, even when you were raised with people who are not, of your cultural background and people when you're and if you're you are raised by people of your cultural background and you live around a community that does not support where you come from or who you are the level of survival i don't think people understand that we're taught very spiritually at a very young age about surviving and about protection if it's not even to the severest point of where you're at, where you're said, you know, I needed to survive, you may have been killed. I know, for, in my experience, I knew I had to protect myself. From what, like you just said, from what, I wasn't quite sure, but I knew I wasn't quite safe, you know? And this is from a very, like you said, from a very young age, you know, eight, six, four. And I think um, when people, as we grow, and as we become adults in this world, and we're able to navigate this world without being homicidal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's just be real. Um, it's a testament to strength. And like I said earlier, for black men, I don't think that I know for sure that black men are not recognized for that testament of strength. 
for in my in all of my knowing of all the black men in my life and all the black men that I've come across, um, violence just wasn't where we were. It's not where we really are. It's and so um, so I with your story being what it is, um, from there now you're 18 years old, and you've moved out right you're not living you're you were gone from those the, the family I was gone when I was around 16 17 right um you know I would come in and out and I was just disconnected yeah. I've been disconnected from them since I was you know emotionally I would hide food I would I had a, you know and kids you know kids in general have a whole secret life that's away from their parents anyway yeah. but I had a real secret life I <laughs> right. you know I had a multiplicity, if you will, of secrets from everybody mm-hmm. um, so that I could live and, 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 and not be hurt. Huh. And so, so for me, and, and I wasn't a healthy child. There, mm-hmm. There's no point in time, you know, this isn't a coming of age tale in my youth where I emerged at 18 years old as this very healthy person. No, no. that wasn't the case at all. Right. There, was this, there was generational um, and personal trauma that experience that manifested me treating women like garbage, mm-hmm. using them as, you know, we're talking about a person with fractured yeah. self-esteem still to this day. Right. And so, you know, using career and drugs and crime and treating women very, very poorly mm-hmm. and destroying, you know, my relationship with my son that I had at 24 years old mm-hmm. because I was involved with, with, with the drug lifestyle and, and career was important. And um, treating women like garbage. So, the, the, so let's not, you know, one of the things I, that I always stress is let let's not mythologize IC Bailey's life. Right. Or but let, let's let's tell the truth is that is that a lot of these things that I talk about misogyny, patriarchy, uh, abuse to, to to women I engaged in simply because. Um, I didn't know any better because I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to be any better. That's all I knew was pain and suffering. Right. And then um, the work that I had to do on myself, mm-hmm. you know, the work of therapists and pastors and community leaders and drug counselors and, 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 and action committees and getting in volunteerism and stuff like that. I did a lot of work to get in the space where I think I'm headed in the right direction in the last 15 or so, 20 years. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't want to romanticize the abuse, right? You don't want to make this into a fairy tale Disney movie like this isn't. Right, right, right. right. Because, because there's some things that I've always had. I, I always believe that there's times when I was... Um, I was kind to people who were suffering, but there's also times when I was just trash to people. I was right. just I was just trash because that's what I knew. I didn't know what healthy behavior was. I had no clue. Right, right. No clue what healthy and I had to learn. And I had a lot of amazing black women as mentors right. and friends yeah. along the way. <laughs> I'm pointing at you and you're the amazing friend that yeah. you know I, that's just, gonna probably teach me a lot. I you know I, I'm just like, I'm so humbled by it. Like, you just, as you're talking, I'm thinking about all these conversations we could have. I could be like, oh, we could talk about healing and we could talk about, I mean, there's just so much that, I, <laughs> that I'm so happy that we crossed paths. Um, so, okay. So how many, have you written any other books? No, I, I have a couple more coming up. The um, Right now, I'm hoping to finish by spring 
black boy, white town, my rules for survival. Yeah. And, and it's from a perspective of not a story chronologically, although it does follow chronologically, mm-hmm. but a series of rules that I had to follow in order to survive. Number one, the first thing I learned was um, accept pain. It will be with you always. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the first lessons. And I tell a story related to that, about the pain that I received from day one being in a community like that. Mm-hmm. Rule two, two, as an example, is being visible. What happens, you know, to a child who doesn't have any friends, so books are his best friends. Right. reads, you know, very well, eloquently and precisely and has a love of words. What happens when he shares that in the community of white children in school? Mm-hmm. What will happen to him? How will he be treated? And mm-hmm. what I learned was rule number two, be invisible. Right. Oh, be invisible. Wow. Invisible. So there's a, there, there's this book has three sections to it. One is basic survival. Two is mastery of basic survival. And three is the illusion of control, mm-hmm. in which there's a group of rules of stories attached that tell how I survive. My rules for survival. Right, right, right. So you're working on that now. Yeah, I'm. I'm working for it now. I'm working on it now. Um, I. You know, we've got a bunch of chapters done, and I should be finished by sometime in in March. Oh, and wow. so we see it on the on the bookshelves. Who knows? Maybe is you know at, at maybe the end of summer after um, uh, the possible new publisher gets their hands on. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's amazing. Fun. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I like I said, and I'm gonna keep saying it. Like you have, in, like you're inspiring. I have these ideas, and I'm seeing you do, and I'm like. I can, I can do it. I can do it. I can, you know. It's, well, absolutely. It's like, I look at your show. I look at your show. I watched your show the other day when you had one of your guests on. And I was just so amazed and proud of you on how you're, you're able to create this environment where this is amazing content. And here's a black woman showing leadership in her community. That's a great example. It was fun to watch. Oh, thank you so much. I'm trying. Look, I'm trying, man. Look, it's very, it's very I hear difficult. You. I hear you. It's, very, it's good. Um, so now I want to talk about, like, you've got this the book, Conversations with White People, Dialogues About Race. Um, I have not read it. <laughs> and I want to read it. So I'm going, I think you, I think there may be an emailed version, I think. And I'm going to deep dive right into it. Let's talk about it. I think you sent me, did you send me something like a, like a. Yeah, so I sent you the ebook. Okay. So, okay. so Conversations with White People, Dialogues About Race. Yes. Um, is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble okay. through either trade paperback, through paperback, through print book okay. or through by ebook and you can reach out and purchase it at conversationswithwhitepeople.com okay excellent so talk, let, let's talk about it for a little bit now where this obviously i mean i'm just not gonna say obvious anything tell me about the book how how long how right. yeah just tell me about the book yeah so what happened was is that as a result of all the stuff and all of the different elements of my life, I recognized, started seeing racism wherever I went. Right. And so then I would talk to people and they, they would say to me, I see, you see racism in everything. There can't be racism in everything. Yeah. I sort of, you know, I've done my academic reading, like empirical measurements, right. and, you know, and our lived experience. Yeah, there's racism in everything. But then I started questioning myself going, maybe there's not. 
And so then I started having dialogues, more and more dialogues right. with white people because I went, I tried to find someplace where there was a concordance of these dialogues. Mm -hmm. And some great teachers, Maya, Tony, um, Webb Dubois, Malcolm X, Shirley Chisholm, Tubman. We, we have all of this writing that's available to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But nowhere did I see just conversations. Right? I'm, I'm hearing stuff from white people like, we love Dr. King and we love Malcolm X. And the reality is, is that I knew that, that they didn't like Martin Luther King. I read something about 80% uh, of the people who um, um, who were alive, white people were alive at the time, detested Dr. King. And if you detested Dr. King, then you absolutely <laughs> ain't Malcolm, right? Right. right. So, There's no way you were swinging to my... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so wait a second. There, 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 the, what people are saying in the conversations they're being had at the time, even though we don't have a lot of them, mm -hmm. there's something not right here. Right. So then I started having my conversations and documenting them through social media. Mm -hmm. And then with with the idea of publishing them so people could see an example of where white people are at and, 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 and more about us as black people being able to share our narrative, our stories, right. our lived experiences, the things that are important to us. You know, it's one of those things where, like, social media has gotten to the point where, you know, you listen to the white folks now, and they're like, I, I had no idea that it was this bad. And I'm looking like, you didn't hear us the last, you know, <laughs> you didn't hear the marches and the people dying, the, ra the riots. You, you, That was just not there, you know? We were just making it up before, and now you got cameras, you got the police brutality being recorded, you've got, you know, uh, head cameras, you got all these people showing up and, and putting it out on social media, and now the white folks are going, well, maybe there's, maybe there's something to it, you know what I mean? And so, you know, and so for me, um, conversations, I have a lot, um, and I, I sometimes want to make sure I'm very careful because I was raised around white folks that I don't um, compromise the conversation too much where I start to go, they don't get it and I know why they don't get it. And then they get a pass because I actually know why they don't get it. I'm not even worried about it. And then now that I've gotten older, I'm like, I'm gonna need you to know. Like, I need you to know what's going on, <laughs> right? Like, it's like to the point where- Right, at least, at least I wanna tell you, and it maybe it's like catharsis or, or whatever, it's like healing, like, like because, because I don't think the question is that they, they don't get it. I think they don't care. I don't right. think they need to. I think their privilege has set them where it's not a necessity of their life. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. Absolutely, and that and that's the argument. They're like, well, we don't even have black folks here. They don't. They're right. But does that mean it's not important? Like that, and that's the privilege that they're that they're riding with. They're like, why do I need to know? Yeah. Right. Why Why would it be important to them? Why should it be important to them? And this is what I'm trying to to teach some of the the white people in our network mm -hmm. who who can follow black leadership and, and instruction on these issues. Because what they've recognized is that their quality of life 
their advancement as human beings, just even being a better person, mm -hmm. their relationships with their children, their relationships with their workplace, right. their relationships with themselves are made better by extricating themselves from some of these poor behaviors. Right. Like, there's a benefit for white people because you, you, if you have, never mind if you just have relationships with black people and you freed yourself of the bonds that your own racism has towards mm -hmm. like it gives you more choices mm -hmm. you get more choices as a human being right. if you listen to black perspectives we've been doing stuff we created the world as you see it and so we know how to do stuff collectively right right you, we, we're gonna you know let's look from appropriate level if we if you said okay you know what i'm not gonna appropriate rap music, I'm just going to work with black musicians, let them take the lead, let them own studios, let them do the stuff they need to do, mm -hmm. then your own art is going to be even better, rather than you trying to force something onto us. Because, like, for example, rap music isn't for black people no. anymore, it's really for primarily for white people, yeah, right? Yeah. They're the mass um, consumers of it. Right. So what, what you get is a product that, that their children now are listening to and their children, because it's empty, because it's built on a stereotype, it's built on negative imagery, mm -hmm. the children now are exposed with poor behaviors and get involved in oxy-use, uh, oxy right. um, drug addiction and weed. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's escalating in mass shootings. Mm -hmm. And that's primarily because, you know, as Malcolm would say, the chickens have come, no, the roosters? Is it chicken or rooster? Roosters have come home. Come to come home, yeah, yeah. To, no, the, 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 the hand I don't think it was for that, yeah. but, but I don't know what meant. He probably meant the fox, he's probably conflating foxes, but hey, listen, I can step over. Yeah, the fox, the, the, the roosters have come home. Come home. The hands have come to roost? I don't know, but. Why do we not know this? Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're saying. What you know, right? <laughs> Right. Absolutely. So it's interesting because um, what you brought up with the idea that that um, that rap, what you said caught my attention that rap is empty. It's it's a, based on a stereotype. So let me qualify that because okay. when when I see black thought give that three or four or five minutes of freestyle not yeah. too long ago. That's an amazing example. Jay Cole's putting out some stuff. You know, even Chance the Rapper did some stuff. Mm -hmm. There's some folks out there who are producing some quality music. Right. So let's say you can get that twisted. There's always been garbage music then, garbage music no, now. No, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so to paint all of our artists as not being conscious and on point is not true. Right. What I'm saying is why there's so much garbage is primarily is White youth want to pretend that they're gangsters. They want to walk around saying, my name, my name, my name. The white youth, my yes. They want to walk around and do that stuff. Right. You know, because they want to be like us. And they always have been yeah. wanted to be like us. Right. Who wouldn't want to be us? We, we're the survivors of generations, right? We, we created the, the pyramids. And we've, we've been able to live and survive through periods of extended attempts at genocide. Goodness, we're amazing. You know, yeah. I've al I've always thought like I've I heard saw this little um I don't know what it was, but it was like a maybe a saying, maybe it was a t-shirt where they said they want our uh they want our rhythm but not our blues, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's it. I love that. Yes. They want our rhythm but not our blues. How would you blues, get that? Right? You're taking the soul out of the music, right? right? And I'm not, you know, I you know you know, as you get older, people keep on talking. Yeah, well, you kids today, you don't have this, you don't have that. 
the reality is, is that I love my music then. I love my hip hop now. I'm hip hop as the work goes. I'm hip hop until I die. Hi. I'm generation <laughs> one hip hop. There was no generation of hip hop. I remember we had no mixtapes, yeah. no CDs. You couldn't hear it on the radio. You couldn't hear it any place. It might get a scratchy station, WBLK, mm-hmm. up here, you know, from Buffalo late at night. But but it was hard to get our music. Right. We right. fought for that music. Yeah. And so, me, I love my hip hop. No, you know I what I mean? You. I hear I, you. I I got right now fight the power playing an endless <laughs> trap like Radio Ra- uh, Raul in my head, right? Yeah. Radio Raul in my head. Yeah. Fight the power is that beat? Yeah. Um, absolutely. I try to make sure I play it so my children can hear it because you can't hear that anywhere else. You got to bring it back. It's like my family is very historical where we, my the men in my family and the women, we have always been jazz enthusiasts. So it goes back even further that, you know, we're talking about Eric Dolphy and John Coltrane and, you know, Thelonious Monk. Those folks are what I grew up on. You know, the hip hop right. came as a choice later <laughs> as I grew up. Yeah, right. of course, right? Sarah Vaughn. Right. So it's like, we, um, that's what I grew up on. My parents did not play. They were not playing hip hop. They're from the 40s, you know, they were grew up in the 40s. They're from yeah. St. Louis, you know. The, the <laughs> So, so hip hop for me was a choice as I got older, you know, because I, but I was coming from that base, and all of it's ours, all of it is right, right, and, yeah. and I don't think you can take the theologian's monk from hip hop. Like, there's yes, a continuum exactly. of, of black music, exactly, right? Just, just like you know, part of me, I, you know, I want to listen to my Junior God, my Bob Marley, yes. right, my Peter Tosh, you know, yes. you know. Those, those great Gregory Isaacs, you know, I mean, those are folks that I want to be able to listen to, right? Yeah, and, um, you can go all around the world like this and talk about Yeah, that. right. So, so to me, I see continual black music where, you know, when you start hip-hop, I'm not sure that Theodore Monk isn't a part of hip-hop. I, mm-hmm. I think he, he very much so. I don't know how you, you know, and that's, what is hip-hop then? It's us taking the remnants of our life after colonialization and being forcefully transplanted and making something. Mm-hmm. We're there. So so of course the erroneous monk and you know, you know, I am led belly and all them folks, you know, yeah. Robert Johnson, all them folks have to figure into the continuum of our music. They have like, to how, they Like have how do you have like how do you Louis Armstrong and Alan Fitzgerald, Count Basie, how can you how can you not see them in the music of today, of hip-hop today, because it's a continuum. It's a continuum. And especially hip-hop, because we're sampling after stuff anyway, right? You know, so. well, oh, come on. Like, oh, we can have a whole other hour conversation about that. So I'm yeah. going to ask you something, because I'm just curious. I, I think I already know where you're going to go with this, and I love it because it's going to be on my part of the argument. Like, I'm having an argument <laughs> with this particular yeah. person. So I dance uh, West African dance from Guinea, and um, there's a and I'm gonna have an episode on this pretty soon. But there's a there's an ongoing battle in the scene of white women and black women uh, in the ownership of West African dance. And I have a friend who is a scholar, she's a PhD, has studied this all her life, um, and the argument being that. African culture, if you actually understand it in its modern day, is absolutely not black culture, right? This is the argument. It's absolutely not black culture. Then you've got black culture here in the United States who we are trying to steal. There's there's people who are trying to steal 
attach themselves to African culture um, and say that this is our culture. This is our this is our culture. Like we need to be in the front lines of these dances. We need to be the, the groups in this group. Not the white white women don't need to be in the front here. It needs to be us. Right. So this particular person is saying that um, the ownership of that dance is isn't is kind of a faulty post-traumatic idea. And I, I almost lost my mind, but <laughs> so, this person black or white? She's black. And okay, she's down. So, very smart. Right? Very so, so, Yeah. I think I don't know what she's trying to do with that. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know yeah. Okay, so let me talk about the black academic. Because now does he teach her at an H she no, she teaches at a university. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she. She says university. So sometimes what you get in academia, even with HBCUs, is this proximity to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of even with HBCUs, you're going to see a lot of those processes, academic processes and structures, emulate Euro structures. Mm-hmm. But with that comes this need to have what they call as academic. Um, dissertation or academic, if you will, scholarly um, discussion mm-hmm. in dialogue. Again, you know, it's important for them to be able to create arguments, papers, and constructs mm-hmm. that appear to be objective. But the whole process, the medium is the message, the whole process of doing them doing it that way makes them unobjective because they're, they're, they're following it's Eurocentric concept. constructs. It's Eurocentric, exactly. Right. And, and, and so part of the Eurocentric set says is, is based on the fact that he or they, excuse me, let me use my gender stuff, there you go. they win set the rules. Mm-hmm. They win set the rules. And so a lot of what we've known and a lot of influence and a lot of even the power to record what happened. Let's say we, we go back and we look at Ghana 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right? What happened with dance there? Well, part of that lived experience, if today in the age of digital recording, we're not getting all our lived experience, mm-hmm. how can we expect that 200 years ago when black people were property uh, and, and looked upon as beasts of burden, do you ever think that our history is properly recorded? Right. And then in the their argument to that is say, well, here's what we do know. And again, I'm just going to say that bias, prejudice, racism uh, allow you, sit you, the observer, with a level of cognitive dissonance that stops your ability to be able to have choice to record other people's lived experiences. Absolutely. So you, well, there's some things that we intuitively know to be true. What natural white people lived in West Africa? Mm-hmm. A thousand years ago, how many Europeans were living in West Africa? Mm-hmm. And, and how long, if we were to look at the history of West Africa, and what what do we see, who do we see there? How long how long has that culture been there and been prevalent? How long has dance been, been there? Thousands and thousands and thousands, thousands of years. Yeah, thousands. Right, and then we go back 200 years of which white people then all of a sudden and really, we're probably talking about the Berlin Council of 
a Berlin Conference of 1883 mm -hmm. in which Europe decided how they were going to parcel up Africa. And then that's when you see the mass industrial white complex mm -hmm. cut and take control of black lives. Mm -hmm. And then that's what they're talking about, influence. Mm -hmm. But you're very quick to forget the thousands of years no white person ever set foot in there. It's almost like people saying, well, Christopher Columbus. I see, you're, which your shirt says, Columbus oh, yeah. is a, let, read it, let me see it. Columbus is a murderer in the, wait, I can't see it. The rapist, genocide, oh, pedophile, <laughs> assassin, monster, genocide, serial killer. That is what his right. t-shirt reads. <laughs> right, right. So what we hear is this, his story yeah. about how Columbus and these people discovered North America, Turtle Island. Right. We know that's true. So how can these, in the same way, how can a culture that's been around thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years before white people ever showed up, how can you say their art forms are white influence primarily? Right. No, that's communistic nonsense. Right. Um, and that, the connection to the history and the connection, well, the connection to the history um, of of our ancestry back to Africa uh, is is not I I was tr I was deeply troubled by it because it's it's not up for it's not up for qualification you know what I mean like mm -hmm. it's one of those things where I it was a very disappointing um, idea from like you said from a scholar position being so Eurocentric to try to take away that connection. And being as if like post-traumatic connection. Well, that's very relevant in itself, and it doesn't make it not correct. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right, right. It actually, absolutely. It actually builds on the idea that it absolutely needs to be protected and uh, propagated forward. So, I wanted to see what you had to say about that because that's going to be a conversation that we have. I'm going to have with some dancers um, here in the community because it's an ongoing battle, and it's. Right. It, it's a shame. It's a it's a real real shame. So if the argument is that the current form of dance has white influence because the European invaders are not settlers, white the European invaders, rapists, murderers, and genocidal um, you know, oops, <laughs> sugar shows. Right, right. The genocidal sugar shows uh -huh. came in and and infest their art and culture or their misunderstanding of our culture and black lives, then I agree with them. If they're saying that right now that there's some white influences because they forced themselves, well, of course there is. Right. But what could we, what would the art be without that? Yeah. Right? But, right. But, right. But, but I, I would struggle to say to you that, you know, <laughs> if you were to go look at the forms of dance mm -hmm. um, from... Um, you know, post-colonial times to, to colonial times, and you see that there's joint diametric differences, and then you were, were able to view the art from today, the dance from today, I'd ask you a question, which, which, art, which form of dance does it most likely closely resemble? Well, yeah, and uh, there, I mean, there's definitely complexities to this argument. There's massive complexities to this argument, even coming and, from, from Africans that, that don't, don't generate the connection to black folks either. So then you've got Africans supporting white folks saying, well, yeah, anyone can dance these dances. Um, and then we then we're we're then having a complex uh, 
conversation between black folks and Africans that that is is deep and 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 shallow at the same time. It's very it's very disconnected and at the same time it's very um it's a traumatic conversation for on both sides. And it's right. yeah. Right. You know one of the things I want to say is then let's look at break dancing because that's a great example right. of the exact same phenomenon. Is, is that there's a point in time when that was looked at as hook dancing or street dancing, mm-hmm. whether it's Roxanne Crew out of New York City or any of the stuff that came from, from you know, you know African Bob Bob, Sonic Force, um, Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, or whatever's happening over here, or whatever's happening over there on the West Coast, coast East Side. Right. Anyway, <laughs> East Side, yeah. right. But, but the, the point is, is, is that now you're seeing that form of dance that was never respected up until the last maybe 10 years, in my opinion, right? Um, You know, I remember seeing Beat Street, the king of the beat. You got to rock that beat from across the street. There's a lesson, too, because you can't let the beat beat you. Now I remember seeing that movie and breaking and just got my head on fire. Now, and I said, you know, those would make, I remember saying, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, mm-hmm. those would make amazing musicals. And it didn't catch on until today. And now you see the folks who have the resources to get this stuff done mm-hmm. building um, productions using black dance. And so, you know, are they going to have that conversation, the white influence on black dance or, or rap music, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can say that, yes, what Hip hop was influenced by 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 whiteness. Right. It, it was degraded. The art, the flow, the rhyme, our experiences, our experiences. you know, only right, right. Were, were, were inexorably damaged by white influence. And and I'm going to argue that most likely African dance experienced the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when you walk into the Congo, mm-hmm. in Ferdinand from Belgium, and 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 murdered twenty million. Congolese people, mm-hmm. how does that not affect the art? How can you argue that the white influence, genocidal, homicidal, uh, you know, rapists and mass murderers, mm-hmm. how can you not hold the opinion that white influence actually was a detriment to black art? Right. How can you not after killing so many right. black people right. who were and artisans and stuff like that and thought leaders right exactly yeah you know and um it's one of those ideas where you just people if you can't take the history away from the conversation you cannot take it away (laughs) where even in this very present day all of it is relevant because this is how this is why we're here doing what we're doing right now um and i think when when people want to have the ownership uh over something that doesn't have representation in their own world. Oh, that's a kind of complex, I'm trying to think, that's a complex idea as well. I feel like the connection to this particular art form is something that's very, very cellular for women, black women and men who are involved in that community. We always make it our own you know, the, the movements when we do it are, are absolutely different than the movements uh, when done by others. It's always, I mean, um, 
ah, I'm just thinking about like it gets so it gets so deep. And you're on the East Coast. So you what you have that we don't have here is numbers. You have community on the East Coast. The West Coast we suffer in in numbers uh, to to be able to pull and push with any kind of force to keep our uh, sacred uh, identity and the connection to what we believe that connects us all in, in together, you know, but mm-hmm. like, if you go to Oakland and Los Angeles, you know, Southern California, they're definitely better in co- the better in numbers. And they definitely been able to hold on to, um, to the authenticity of it and also bring flavor that's just black American to it. So it, we've got that there, but if you start coming up where I'm at Pacific Northwest, Mm-hmm. it's all whitewashed you can't even i mean you just can't we've lost our community here in our, my, my the town that i live in uh due to this very issue um and so i don't even i can't even dance anymore it's been a good six months since i've danced here i have to go down to oakland which is you know nine hours away or up to seattle and up in seattle is the same thing you know it's a bunch of white people so what, too so what what what's some of your experiences like what are you experiencing Trying to, to practice your art. Like, what is, be specific. Tell well, me, understand. I mean, for one, we can't, we're not, without the without the numbers of black women bringing the, the energy that, you know, we're catering. The African influence is catering to people who are bringing the money, right? So there's some people here, like us, the women who are dancing it because we have a spiritual connection. We have a love. We have a deep needing cellular need for this. But what we mm-hmm. do, but what we lack is that financial backing that the Africans are looking for. With white women, they got that all day. They have the money, but they don't have the connection. So then what happens is that the value goes to them. The The opportunities go to them. The, uh, a artist will come here from New York, and let's say we can't get enough people for a class. Well, there's a, a group of people who can put the money together. We'll have a private class. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like- Right, right, right. And, and, then, and, there'll, and there'll be like things like, okay, you know, you may decide to use um, former music, some Miles Davis's music that is politically charged or something. And they say, well, you know, I really don't like that. It's, you know, can we do anything? Can we, can we put some music on that's less aggressive? Right on and, the nose. Uh, and they might put Miley Cyrus or some shit on. Or some stuff on. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But even, even with the African dance, right? Even with the African dance, it's like they, if you can't keep up with the speed, then guess what happens? The Africans are like, we're we're about to take it down and white it out. Let's do it. Let's do it slower. Let's make mm. the moves more simple. Let's keep the timing to a four four when the real song and the real beat and the speed is at a six eight. And you know, it's it's like what it's one of those things where we we're not being challenged and pushed. Um and this is up like I said, Pacific Northwest problems, not not Southern California. They got their own thing and it's strong and but anyway, so yeah, you're right. It's it's becomes catered, it becomes skewed, and then it becomes misrepresented and then it's represented by white women. And not yeah. well. Like, I mean, I know some white women who can dance. Like, I mean, they got the, the, the West African, I mean, they are moving. But when you talk to them, they would never be the woman up front owning that culture. They are very humble about their beginnings. They're very humble about their studies. They work hard. They go, they've been to the countries. They're very humble about what they're learning. And they take their butt to the mid or back. They do not parade up front like they're the, 
and they are fire dancing like mm-hmm. you would, you know, but that's not who I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> I'm talking about the ones who are trying to own it, mediocre at best, you know, off rhythm, trying to change the outfits, trying to change the music, trying to, and then, and then we have an argument when there's two black women in the, in the whole class, whether or not they should be up front or not. You know, it just becomes, it, it's those microaggressions when you're trying to have a peaceful pa- space. So, right, and you know, you know this, this, all this stuff leads me back to um, some of the guidance that we get from Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about, you know, well, I have a dream because that was a, that was a speech that lasted about 10 minutes or something right. like that. That's right, that's the only one we ever you know? heard. <laughs> no, actually, I think it was longer than that. I think it was supposed to like 40 it was, minutes. Yeah, right? it was long. It was long. Right? But that's, I've been yeah. a character rather than color of skin. I'm focused on a letter from a Birmingham jail in which he talks about how liberal white people get in black spaces and black movements and we can take that over the black art and create, if you will, roadblocks to our, to our liberation, to our voices. They want to be even in black spaces with black faces and black music and moving. They want to have control. And, and that's problematic because it doesn't matter what we're doing. It seems be that white people want to assert the control that they've become addicted to for the last 400 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that is exactly uh, the the issue. The liberal white person with mm-hmm. the impact versus uh, with the intention versus impact and the privilege that's right. all in that um, is is an ongoing issue. And I think it's it's you know it's like trying to talk to a fish in water. Like they don't get that they're in water. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they don't. So it's like uh, so. It's one. Of the, it's an ongoing, and it's a constant micro. It's a constant aggression that you're all, that you're working with here. Um, so we're almost up to an hour. I love talking to you. I'm so happy. Is there anything that you wanted to cover and say before we wrap it almost up? No, I, I mean just keep on. Listen, <laughs> we're friends now. We friends. We friends. We are good. We friends. <laughs> yes. um, this, all I'm going to say to you is, is that I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate the time, the detail, the expertise, the love and care that you put into to your friendships and this work, and that means a lot to me. I, I um, you know, need this being my first book. I'm very, very mindful and sensitive to. I'll do like don't get me wrong. I'll do as many shows and talk to as many people. Mm-hmm. But I felt a connection with you right from the, the get-go. So I'm, I'm just really appreciative of, of you, Aisha. Thank you and so much. Star, uh, you're a complete star. I'm awesome. like, don't make me blush. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean it. I think you're incredible. I, it's, it means a lot. It means a lot. It's my family there. Just understand that we're united. Come and check us out in Facebook, mm-hmm. conversationswithwhitepeople.com. Yes. That can be, if, if you will, the entranceway to this network of blackness where we're sharing intro, uh, we're sharing conversations. Sometimes it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're not going to like all of us. Right. <laughs> right. But we're here for you. We love you. We care about you. You're important to us, mm-hmm. right? Black Lives Matter. Right. right? Absolutely. Matter. So let's, right. let's say where they can get your book again, Conversations with White People, Dialogues About Race. Uh, there's an ebook you said, and on Amazon. And where else now? So, yeah, so the best place to go to is if you simply go to conversationswithwhitepeople.com, mm-hmm. you will see uh, 
um, a list of places. You, you just click on the links there. You want to go to Amazon and buy it, you buy it there. Arms and Noble, you'll be given a bunch of sources where you can buy it from. Excellent. Right? Yes. Yeah, so go out, everyone, and uh, pick up the conversations with white people, dialogues about race. If nothing else, you will learn something. <laughs> you will absolutely learn right, something. Right. You're going to learn something. And I'm going to tell you that if you link in and then you look for me, I see Bailey, I am one of the only, if not the only, interactive author in the world. So you can reach out to me and within 48 hours, I'm going to get back to you. Oh, As a matter of 10,000 people reach out to me, I'll spend a couple of days and I'll just write back to you. I mean, if 10,000 people get a hold of me, it might be really short, but if you get a hold of me, I'm here for you. I want I want you to have some conversations. That's, right? that's amazing. Thank you so much again. I'm going to take a moment here to end the recording and we're out.